The following is a presentation of Tomorrow's World. Welcome to Tomorrow's World, where today I'm going to reveal to you one of the most amazing mysteries of our day. It's truly the story behind the story. You've probably never heard of it, and so you really don't want to miss this program today. The 1953 coronation of Queen Elizabeth II was a spectacular event. Even today you can read about what she wore, about the pomp and the ceremony. The British crown jewels are famous around the world, but unless you are a British subject, you probably know little about the jewel she sat on, or more correctly, sat over. It had no sparkle. It was not finely cut as were the stones she wore. Instead, it's a dull red sandstone block weighing approximately 336 pounds. That's over 150 kilos. Following the example of kings and queens of England going back 700 years, she was crowned sitting on what today has become an old rickety-looking beat-up throne that has a shelf designed into it to hold this large rock. Why such a strange tradition? Why is such a rock so important to the English, and as we shall see, the Scots as well? And what is its significance? Far more than you could ever imagine. On today's program, I'll explain the story behind the story, why the Stone of Destiny is so important, and why it should matter to you. And I'll also be offering you a chance to order our free publication, the United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. So don't go away. Welcome to Tomorrow's World, where today we're going to look at one of the most remarkable stories you've likely never heard. It's a story of a rock, but not just any rock. It's in a very special way part of the crown jewels of both Scotland and England. The throne under which it sits goes back around 1300 AD, and it's reported to be the oldest piece of English furniture crafted by a known artist. It's made of sturdy oak, but has been vandalized in various ways over the centuries. Altar boys and early tourists mutilated it by carving their initials into it, and age has taken its toll. Today it's not very elegant to look at, and one must wonder why such a relic from the past would be a part of a modern coronation. Even less impressive, but of greater importance than the chair itself, is the stone that is placed under the seat and the story that accompanies this stone. Now why such an old, and many would say, unattractive throne? And what's the purpose of this equally unattractive stone? The answers are amazing and their implications profound, as this is no ordinary rock. Notice what the Encyclopedia Britannica says about it. According to one Celtic legend, the stone was once the pillow upon which the patriarch Jacob rested at Bethel when he beheld the visions of angels. 
from the Holy Land it purportedly traveled to Egypt, Sicily, and Spain, and reached Ireland about 700 B.C. to be set upon the hills of Tara, where the ancient kings of Ireland were crowned. Thence it was taken by the Celtic Scots who invaded and occupied Scotland. About A.D. 840 it was taken by Kenneth MacAlpin to the village of Scone. In 1296, King Edward I took it from the Scots, brought it to England, and had a special throne built to hold it. Since that time, every king and queen of England, with one exception, were crowned while sitting on this chair over what is often referred to as the Stone of Destiny. The Scots never quite got over this injustice done to them by King Edward, also known as Longshanks, as he was quite tall for his day. And in 1950, a young Scot and a few friends hatched up a plot over a few pints in the pub. Their plan was to break into Westminster Abbey and bring the Stone of Destiny back to Scotland. Their Christmas Day caper triggered the greatest manhunt, or should I say rock hunt, in the history of England. But somehow, Ian Hamilton and his co-conspirators succeeded in smuggling it back to Scotland. Eventually, however, it was turned over to the authorities and the coronation stone was returned to England in time for Queen Elizabeth's coronation in 1953. But this doesn't end the story. Since there is no statute of limitations in Scotland for the crime of theft, Scotland sued England to have it returned, and through careful negotiations, England relented. It was returned to Scotland where it sits today as the centerpiece of Scottish crown jewels and Edinburgh Castle. However, there is a proviso that the English can borrow it any time a new king or queen is crowned. Now, I've seen this stone and it's nothing special to look at. What makes it important is the legend and history behind it. Now, what we've seen so far is the more recent history of this stone. And when I say recent, even Longshank's theft of it and 1296 is relatively recent, as its history is much longer, and to understand it we must go back about 4,000 years. And this part of the story is even more intriguing than young Scots breaking into Westminster and lawsuits between nations. The starting place is explained in our publication, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. It explains how a small island nation such as Britain could rule nearly a quarter of the earth. Now if you'd like a free copy of this publication that explains so much about our present world and where it is headed, pick up the phone and call, or write, or go online to receive your copy of The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. And I'll be right back with the beginning of our story. Today's offer is yours absolutely free, no cost, no obligation. Call now, 1-800-236-0531. Or write to us at the address on your screen. Or visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. With this offer, you will also receive your free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine. 
full of timely articles and unique insights on today's important issues. And be sure to go to tomorrowsworld.org forward slash digital. Have a digital subscription sent right to your email inbox faster than postal mail. Visit us online now. The Bible tells us that early in man's history, God called a man named Abram, and he told him to leave his comfortable home in his country and go to a place that God would show him. But God gave this man specific promises if he would do so. Notice Genesis, the 12th chapter, and verses 2 and 3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a subject about which almost no one understands. Yet it is there for anyone to read, and ultimately it explains the remarkable success of the English-speaking peoples of Britain, Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. It's also relevant for the nations of Belgium, the Netherlands, parts of Switzerland and France, and the Scandinavian countries, as well as Hong Kong and India. When you read through the book of Genesis, you see that God repeats His promise to Abram and his descendants a number of times. But as you progress, more and more specific details are given. In Genesis 13 and verse 16, we read, And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. After this, God made a covenant with Abram when he was 99 years old, in which he expanded the promises and changed Abram's name to Abraham. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Abram's name was changed to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. He was to be the father of a multitude of nations. This is confirmed in the next verse. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. These promises made millennia ago have relevance for us today, and they reveal the key to understanding biblical prophecy. Many people realize that there is something significant regarding the tiny nation known today as Israel, but because they don't understand these promises, they miss the big picture. All of this is spelled out in greater detail in our fascinating publication, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. In the course of time, Sarah produced an heir for Abraham. She miraculously conceived and bore a son whom they named Isaac. Having to wait so long for this son was a great test of faith. But there are additional reasons why Abraham is called the father of the faithful. No doubt the greatest test was when God told him to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him. We know from the story that God stopped him from following through on this command. But Abraham didn't know this at the time. He dutifully went about doing what God commanded. And on this occasion, God again added to his promises. 
By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And your seed, all the nations of the earth, shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here we see that Abraham's descendants would possess the gate of their enemies. We're beginning to see that the promises to Abraham were more than the one seed of Jesus the Christ. While that is clearly stated in the one seed part of these prophecies, we also see promises of a multitude of people, many nations, kings, and possessions of gates. For example, the plural of gate is used when passing the promises down to Abraham's son Isaac and his wife Rebekah. Under inspiration from God, Rebekah's family spoke the following, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. My friends, these are remarkable prophetic promises, if they are true. And we're going to see that they are true, that they have been and are being fulfilled right before our very eyes. Furthermore, although you may not realize it, these promises have affected your life and will continue to do so. Now we come to a part of the story that affects what is happening in our world today. And you can read it in your daily news. As with Sarah, Rebecca had difficulty in conceiving, but she eventually did. And when she did, she was carrying twin boys who struggled in her womb. When she inquired of God as to why this was so, He answered, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. The two sons were named Jacob and Esau. The Jews are some of the sons of Jacob, and the children of Esau, along with Ishmael, Abraham's son by Hagar, live in that part of the world that we know as the Middle East. The struggles that began between Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and Esau continue down to this day. What is happening in that part of the world all began with what we're reading here in Genesis. But this is only a fraction of the story, and what remains is even more interesting. Esau seems to have been the physically stronger of the two boys, but Jacob was craftier and more focused in life. Esau was the older of the two and was in line to receive a double portion of the inheritance as a right of birth. Let's notice how Jacob gained the birthright from Esau. Now Jacob cooked a stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die, so what is this birthright to me? It's evident by what follows that he was not really ready to die. Notice it. Then Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. 
thus Esau despised his birthright. Few today have any idea, but you can know the astonishing truth which explains what is happening in our world and where it's headed. Esau gave up far more than the tiny Middle Eastern nation that Jews and Arabs are fighting over today. Our booklet, The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy, explains the true cost for Esau of one bowl of lentils. As one man from Columbia explained after reading this booklet, finally, everything makes sense. The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy is the key that opens understanding to current events. So don't put it off. Go to your phone and order your free copy today. You can also order a copy or read one online at tomorrowsworld.org. Now I'll be right back in a moment to explain the connection between a bowl of soup and the rock found in Enberg Castle. So stick with me. Today's offer is yours absolutely free. No cost, no obligation. Visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. Find us on Facebook. Watch us on YouTube and follow us on Twitter. Before the break, we saw how Esau sold his birthright to his brother for a bowl of lentils. In addition to the double portion of the birthright, there was a blessing God was handing down through Abraham's descendants. Jacob's mother recognized the value of this blessing and would do what she had to do to ensure that her favorite son received it. In an amazing plot, she helped Jacob deceive his blind father into thinking that he was Esau to secure the blessing. Here in Genesis 27, beginning at verse 28, is the blessing conferred on Jacob. Therefore may God give you of the dew of heaven, of the fatness of the earth, and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you, and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren, and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be those who bless you. Animosity between the descendants of these two brothers continues to this day in the Middle East. But as we will see, not all the descendants are in that part of the world. And that, my friends, is the amazing part of this story that is not generally understood. The result of Jacob's treachery was that the prudent thing to do was to put some distance between himself and his brother. And so he left to go and be with his uncle. While still on his journey, something remarkable happened, and it brings us back to the beginning of this program, back to that rock over which the kings and queens of England are crowned. And how few people understand the significance of what I'm going to cover in the remainder of this program. In a relatively short time, it may be weeks or a few years, Queen Elizabeth II's reign will come to an end. And at that time, an old beat-up throne will be brought out. A rock will be retrieved from Edinburgh Castle, where it resides under glass and placed in a compartment under that throne. And a new king or queen will sit and be crowned sitting over that rock. Why such a strange ceremony? Let's pick up the story in Genesis 28, verses 10 and 11. Now Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. So he came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head 
and he lay down in that place to sleep. And that night he dreamed that there was a ladder that reached into the heavens, and angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Then God spoke to Jacob, The land on which you lie I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and the south. And in you and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Here again we see the promise of the one seed, Christ, in whom all the world would be blessed. But we also see physical promises of national greatness spreading in all directions from the modern land of Israel, anciently called the land of Canaan. This was not an ordinary dream. It had such a profound effect on Jacob that he exclaimed, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Then he did something very unusual as we read in verse 18. Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on top of it. And he said, This stone which I have set as a pillar shall be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Do you realize that it is claimed that this is the very stone over which the kings of Ireland, Scotland, and England, including Queen Elizabeth II, have been crowned? Whether it actually is or not is a subject of much debate. Some believe that it is. Others believe the real stone was hidden at Scone, and the one taken by Edward I in 1296 is a counterfeit. Still others believe Ian Hamilton and his friends took the real stone and hid it, and the one now sitting in Edinburgh Castle is a fake. Even analyses of the stone's makeup to determine the place of its origin are controversial. But here's what we do know. First, whether you believe this stone is truly the same stone that Jacob anointed and set up, calling it God's house, history and legends surrounding this stone are very ancient. It apparently showed up in Ireland as the Lee of Fale. It was later transported to Scotland and then to England in 1296. It's easy to dismiss all this as mere legend, but the coronation stone is only a small part of what we're going to see is a much larger picture linking Jacob and ancient prophecies to Britain and its empire. Jacob's name was changed to Israel, and Scripture uses both names when speaking of the same man. We learn that Israel had twelve sons, and these sons had their own children. They eventually became known as the twelve tribes of Israel. One of those sons was named Judah. He's the father of the Jews. But what happened to the other tribes, the other descendants of Israel? Did they just disappear, as many assume? Those who hold this opinion are greatly mistaken. In a moment, I'll give you a quote from a first-century historian that will prove the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel were not lost. But I want to give you one more reminder to order our free publication, The United States and Great Britain and Prophecy. You'll be glad you did, so pick up the phone, write down our address, or go to our website to get your free copy of 
the United States and Great Britain in prophecy. And I'll be right back with that historic quote that confirms the ten tribes were not lost. Today's offer is yours absolutely free, no cost, no obligation. Call now, 1-800-236-0531. Or write to us at the address on your screen. Or visit us online at tomorrowsworld.org. With this offer, you will also receive your free subscription to Tomorrow's World magazine, full of timely articles and unique insights on today's important issues. And be sure to go to tomorrowsworld.org forward slash digital. Have a digital subscription sent right to your email inbox faster than postal mail. Visit us online now. The Jews are only one of 12 tribes of Israel. Many people think they disappeared from history when they were taken captive in the 8th century BC. But the 1st century Jewish historian Flavius Josephus makes this comment about the tribes of Israel. Wherefore, there are but two tribes of Israel in Asia and Europe subject to the Romans, while the ten tribes are beyond Euphrates till now, and are an immense multitude not to be estimated by numbers. An immense multitude, so wrote Josephus. Where did this immense multitude go? What happened to them? And what difference does that make for you? My friends, it has everything to do with you. Ancient promises from the God of the Bible to the patriarchal family of Abraham have touched you in ways you can scarcely imagine. Truth truly is stranger than fiction. Time doesn't permit me to finish this subject today, but what we see is that the British people value a stone that some claim to be the very stone on which the patriarch Jacob once placed at his head. We've also seen prophetic promises made to Abraham that are the keys to finding the so-called lost tribes of the house of Israel. Next time in this series, we'll see how these promises account for the rise of the British people. We'll better understand why this stone of destiny is found where it is today. We'll see proof that much of this immense multitude that Josephus wrote about ended up in the British Isles and spread out to Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. We'll see that while the promised Messiah would come from the Jews, the birthright promises would go to the sons of Joseph, who are not Jews. And we will also see the amazing connection between Abraham and his descendants and such faraway places as Hong Kong and India. The modern identity of Abraham's descendants is the vital key to understanding end-time Bible prophecies. This fascinating and often misunderstood truth will have a profound impact on all peoples around the globe. It explains why the people of Hong Kong experienced such great prosperity while their Chinese neighbors were held down for so long. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this subject, please order your free copy of The United States and Great Britain in Prophecy. And be sure to come back next week to learn more about these amazing promises and how they have been and continue to be fulfilled 
through the British and American peoples. See you next week right here at this same time. To take advantage of today's free offer or view today's program now or anytime, go to tomorrowsworld.org. Find us on Facebook, watch us on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter. The preceding program is produced by the Living Church of God.